0: Welcome back to Pedagogy Non Grata where we bridge the gap between the scientific literature and teaching in the classroom. I'm joined here today by Artie Shaw who is the host of the Human Chapters podcast Um, and we're going to be going down a little bit of a a different avenue today. Uh, I thought Artie had an interesting story and in part because um, she does something for a career that I'm not that familiar with. I've had to work, she's a speech and language pathologist and uh, although I've had to work with speech and language pathologists before, I don't really exactly know what it is they would do, Um, and I know that she has an interest in evidence-based education, so I thought it would be interesting to hear her backstory and let her talk a little bit about her work, and who knows, I know there are some um, aspiring teachers listening to this podcast, maybe we'll convince some people to, they don't want to be a teacher, but they want to be a a speech and language pathologist instead, so without further ado, I'm going to let Artie introduce herself rather than me, because I'll probably butcher it, so Artie, what can you tell the podcast listeners about yourself?
1: First of all, thank you so much for inviting me on this podcast to, um, yeah, talk about my journey as a speech and language pathologist. So I'm Artie, um, a speech and language pathologist currently working in regional Victoria in Australia. Um, I have been a speech and language pathologist for, oh my goodness, now nearly 10 years. That's a long time. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Um, So so that's a little bit about me. I was born and raised in Kenya and I moved to Australia 15 years ago to pursue um, my tertiary education because at the time, speech pathology wasn't a course that was offered in um, the Kenyan universities. And yeah, it was um, a bit of a cultural thing where we were ever since we were young, we were told you were going to go to a university and you're going to um get a degree which i think in the in that sort of world education was always held at such a high regard and if you didn't have a degree then life was a little bit tougher so that was part and parcel of the culture and going to university getting some sort of a degree um yeah, so that's a little bit of I'm a garden variety um of person. <laughs> and I try to say I'm Kenyan by birth, Indian by ethnicity, and Australian by naturalization. Um so that's my introduction. Yeah.
0: I think I think that that's a very cool background. Um just out of curiosity, because I'm really terrible with accents, so I'm just curious when I hear you speaking, are you speaking with an Australian accent? A Kenyan accent, or is it some combination of all three of your backgrounds?
1: Um, that's a really interesting question. It's it's a modified accent, um, and I have worked on it for years and years. Actually, ever since I was a little girl, I used my ear always used to be in tune with accents, and this is where it was just really interesting. I used to be drawn to Western accents. Um, for I'm not sure what reason, and I would try them out and it would sound like a twang, but I always um, steered away from particular accents and then coming to Australia and starting to work with um, stroke patients. So during my placements, I had quite a few um, hospital placements and acute placements where I worked with stroke patients and I quickly realised even a little bit of an accent accent a thick accent would be a communication barrier for them. So I really had to, yeah, listen to the Australian accent to see how the, they pronounce certain words. And um, that's where, yeah, I've been modifying it for years and years. And now I think I have, I don't even know what sort of an accent I have.
0: <laughs> it sounds also Australian to me, but uh, I don't know. It, it sounds fairly, like, cool and unusual too. And I, I don't know. It's kind of, like, melodic. I like hearing it. Yeah. Um, that's a strange thing to say. I apologize if that was weird, but, um, accents are a funny thing. I know I lived in Korea for a year and, uh, the Korean people, almost all of them speak English, but they speak it with a heavy Korean accent. And, yeah. uh, I started to pick up that Korean accent. Um, and like, mm-hmm. you know, like they, they had this word for their accent that they call it, they call it, um, Konglish, um, combining Korean and English together. Uh, yeah. And like when I first came home to Canada, I was still doing that for a little while, and I felt like a crazy person. It's the same thing. Oh. I lived in England for a time, and like there's words I I go to say now, um, and I still hear a little bit of a, a British accent after living there. And you're like, what the heck? I haven't been there for for years. Where did that come from? For me, yeah. it's whenever I say questions um, with a certain. I can't even think of the word, but there's a, a certain question word. If I say that word and then ask yeah. a question. It comes out with a british accent and I, i'm embarrassed because you feel like the, this weirdo when you say it. you're like what are you doing
1: <laughs> it's amazing what the brain picks up on and yeah. just what it retains yeah
0: i think we have this natural desire just to mimic people though don't we
1: mm, yeah absolutely
0: okay so you are a speech and language pathologist what does yeah. this mean because they they work in my school system. And sometimes they seem to be helping people with reading and you're talking about helping stroke victims. I'm not really sure what it is that your job entails.
1: Okay, so I'll try to put it succinctly, which I will probably fail, but anyway, it's okay. Um, So with a speech and language pathologist, wherever there's a human, that's where we can work. So from the start of life all the way through to till the end of life and one of the um, so two main components swallowing and communication so swallowing. That's all the work um, at the hospital, any stroke patients, any, yeah, anyone that has difficulty swallowing needs a swallow assessment and needs treatment plans um, to be able to safely swallow, um, even if it's for an infant, um, yeah, just anywhere, any phase in life. Uh, That's probably the most important priority for a speech and language pathologist working in that setting. And the other, so communication would include speech. Um, so the, sound, the way we make sounds and how we combine sounds into words and um, words into phrases and phrases into sentences. Then, and that's where there's the overlap into language. Um, so your semantics, your, the meaning of words, the syntax, how the word order is within a sentence. Um, than discourse. So that's your language component. um, And that's where we break it down into your receptive and expressive. So what you are understanding from whether it's somebody speaking to you, somebody instructing you, or whether you're reading a text. That all comes into communication. So that's the language component of it. Expressive is what you're able to tell someone to successfully get your message across. While that's oral language, um, we have expressive in terms of written language as well. So that's um, why speech pathologists work in the field of literacy. And then we have um, speech language voice so voice is also a part of communication and a very important part of it. Um, and so that's the area we delve into as well. Um, be a teacher's voice, we provide education and awareness, um, assess. Yeah, uh, even at hospitals, um, you know, Parkinson's patients, all of that sort of uh And then we speech, language, voice. And so fluency for us um, is in relation to stammer or stutter. How fluently are we speaking um, when it comes to that oral language? So they're the five broad areas. But then we go literacy. Where does that fit into communication? Um, Cognition. Where does that fit into communication as well? Because we're using all these processes sort of in an interconnected way
0: wow that sounds incredibly comprehensive i did not imagine that it it pertained to so many different areas so what kind of qualifications does someone have to have to get a job like this like it sounds incredibly it almost you almost sound like a psychologist or a doctor like where you have to have a pretty advanced training
1: yeah, so it's incredibly broad and deep. Um, for different countries, it's the regulations for universities would be different. So with what I did, it was a four-year full-time degree. Um, and so it was Bachelor of Speech and Language Pathology. And sort of at the end of the degree, we um, had the qualification to work virtually in any setting. But then you you find speech pathologists, speech and language pathologists tend to specialise in different settings. So it's really difficult to find like an overall, um, just because of the scope of work um, we do. And it's with humans. So usually we sort of tend to branch out into, or try and get the different experiences and it's, yeah, university would be different. I think American system is quite different to Canadian system and Australian system, but mine was a four-year full-time degree. Did you have
0: to do an undergrad degree for that?
1: Yeah, so mine was an undergrad, um, but then for in Australia, they offer a master's as well. So, but you can start off with undergrad.
0: Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, So are you working at schools right now?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Okay, so I'm just going to, Slow down for a second. I bring my questions back up because they're on my phone. Um, So what made you want to become a speech and language pathologist? You said your journey started really early. eh?
1: It started really early. It will sound so weird, but here goes. So when I was um, five or six years old, uh, traditionally, we lived in an extended household growing up. And I had quite a few cousins to play with. Um, And every time I was drawn to listening to people, as I said, when I was young, I was just drawn to what I tried to look into people's mouths when they were talking, just because I was so fascinated by the tongue placement and positioning when they were talking. Um, And anyway, one of my dear cousins had a significant lisp when she used to talk and that really used to annoy me greatly but while it annoyed me I also when we went to school together I noticed lots of um, children making fun of her and I think that's that also annoyed me greatly because I was like oh Well, I I couldn't understand why people were making fun of her and that didn't sit well with me. So in a self-serving way, we used to work um, quite diligently every single night on her list and we would practice the S sound and practice it in words and practice it in sentences until she got it. Um, But that's where it sort of first started. And then going into primary school, years I had quite a lot of language um, difficulties myself and uh, the first couple of years were okay Um, they weren't too bad but then going into grade three I discovered that I didn't understand concepts very well Um, I just there were too many gray areas and I couldn't join the dots I couldn't make sense of what they were saying and it was just really difficult at the time to try to comprehend all the subjects um, that we were being taught. And the way our education system worked, we were actually ranked in the classroom. So there were 30 children, um, a lot of the times between 28 to 30, and I used to be second last in class. And it was, um, I just, yeah. And with the limited resources, that were there for children that needed the extra um, or additional help. There were quite a few that sort of flew under the radar or just with teachers didn't seem or couldn't put um, extra resources in for us. So there was after-school tutoring and this would be for families that had the financial capacity to be able to access it. Um, Yeah so I had lots of those language issues at school and it made me think about myself as a learner and I was always sort of trying to everyone's able to get it why why can't I get it and what am I missing and all of those huge questions but they were still left unanswered until high school when we delved into subjects like biology and chemistry where things were black and white there wasn't a lot of room for grace so things were making sense and as these concepts were black and white they were making sense Um, I think I started thinking of myself um, or started questioning what works for me in terms of learning and that's where it had to be explicit it had to be black and white the Um, assumed skills or that just that sort of um, didn't work for me so that's how looking back at it they were all the different uh, difficulties I had and I know that I always had to work way more than the other children way more cramming wasn't my forte I could do I could cram a little bit but still I was always someone how does it apply to the real world if i can't see that if i can't make that connection then i won't understand it um yeah so that's where the journey began and also i lived in a society or in that culture where children with needs and be it learning needs or physical needs that was a massive taboo so uh, taboo topic there's a lot of stigma around it so Again, there were limited resources for um, anyone that needed that additional assistance, and that's where that social justice um, or that social stance was always there. And I know, just within my family, there had there are learning difficulties, and you know, and it was always you're either clever or you're not that clever, and you have to work really hard, and just the pressure that's placed on students um, was incredible yeah so that's where the journey of speech and language pathology started and then going to when i was 18 and had to make the decision of what i wanted to study at the university i loved i loved doing hospital placements um even as a child as a teenager i was spent lots of time at the hospital doing volunteer placements and right got a bit of an idea of what speech and language pathologists did there uh, in terms of swallowing and voice and um, aphasia therapy for stroke patients, um, all those sort of communication related uh, work. And I was always drawn to that. So I was like, let's try that. Um, And I was obsessed with language, how language works and why does it work that way? Yeah, and so I suppose that was my calling, natural course of figuring out.
0: That's all really interesting. I'm, I'm curious were your were your parents um, first generation immigrants to Kenya? Because you said you were you have um, Indian heritage.
1: Yeah, so my gr- um, grandparents they mm-hmm. were first generation immigrants. So Do my parents was
0: it uh, was uh, the Kenyan language uh, not your first language at home.
1: So Swahili, we, so we were brought up with so Swahili, the Kenyan language, and then um, Gujarati is my Indian language. So yeah, we were brought up with three languages, um, but having the difficulties I had, my cognitive resources were targeted towards one or two languages. It was just really difficult to try and um, grasp all three yeah. I, I really
0: identified with your statements about how like it's it started to make more sense to you when you start to look at the more literal subjects. Um well, I don't know if I had that specific experience. I do remember specifically in language class finding everything so subjective and the teachers marking so subjective and it drove me crazy even in high school. I remember thinking I have no idea why I got the mark I did on a on a paper. You'd put your heart and soul in an essay and you you get back a C and you think, "Oh god, what have I done?" You know? Yeah. Uh, and something you know I've always pushed for on on this podcast as a teacher is just this idea that our goal should be to make the learning process as transparent as possible and objective mm-hmm. as possible and remove that subjectivity out of it and uh, I, I don't know I, th- I think the subjective part is actually the hardest part in some ways
1: because yeah. how do you teach um, something
0: that's intangible
1: exactly exactly and how do you Because to teach anything, it needs to, I think about it needing to make sense and needing to be quite concrete. And even if it's, if you can't touch and feel it, to be able to sort of meet that mental schema or visualize it. So that is also, to me, that's a part of being concrete as well. If you can visualize something with clarity, then yeah.
0: I 100% agree. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, you support, you were we were talking earlier and you're telling me you support teachers and students, but uh, are, are you more working with students or more working with teachers to give them advice on how to support students?
1: Yeah, so it's a combination of the two. And so I'll just try to explain my role within schools. Um, okay. I have five different schools I go to. Four of them are um, once a week schools and one of them is once a fortnight um, schools. So with, uh, with each school, there is a caseload um and I have a certain number of students at each school and with the student I do assessments and do um have an intervention plan for them um and again we re we evaluate sort of at the end of term how are the students going what's um being done for the um students in terms of follow-through and if we're somewhat happy with the progress then we yeah yeah as to whether we can give them a break and bring someone else on or do they need to continue um, uh, receiving speech, uh, speech and language pathology service. So what happens is when a student does come to me depending on what age they are and what the concerns are um, by the referrer which would either be the school or parent at this point um, and usually it's uh, the, the stark obvious ones are when they can't um, say their sounds properly. So you that is something you can hear straight away, pick it up and refer. The other thing is literacy. So they're the Ah, oh, they're still not getting it. There is something we can't put our finger on it, but they're not getting it, sort of a thing. So when they come to me, I screen them, do um, language and literacy screeners, and then sort of uh, make that judgment whether they need a formalized assessment, um, language assessment, because they take quite some time. And per student, it would be, you know, close to an hour and a half of the assessment time, plus another... um, hour or two report writing so that's a chunk of the time and if we're looking at a day so we try to get a lot of that information um, through screenings um, and observations so do that battery of functional and standardized assessments and then do the intervention plan and within the intervention plan it's actually looking at okay what skills so i with the students, I try to break it down into what skills do they need to be successful at a particular task, be it reading, writing, uh, speaking or listening? And then what's um, what? how does the brain learn? And that's um, another component of it, followed by, okay, what supports need to be put in place for this child to be able to access the learning? And trying to look at all of those It's quite deep and we need um, the full team. So the child's teacher, anyone that's working with that particular child, so parent, teacher, um, the other uh, support staff that are there, and that's where the capacity building sort of comes in and goes, this particular child has an issue with blending and is therefore not able to decode words accurately. They're memorizing, but they're not decoding. And then we sort of able to show the uh, the teachers, okay, they can read this word with the picture, remove the picture, change the font of the word, and let's see. So you're sort of doing that um, skill building during live sessions, showing them modeling, um, writing, notes and reports doing the progress monitoring so it's a really yeah sometimes it's messy it's really messy Um, I'm trying to put it clean like I'm trying to put it neatly and it's yeah it's usually you're learning you're learning together you're on a journey you're seeing okay trial and error and sometimes it's within split seconds that that a student demonstrates something that I would pick up just because of we're given that luxury of working with individual children and small groups um, of children. Whereas a teacher, yeah, has to look after 20 plus um, students in the classroom. So those split second sort of identifications is really important.
0: Yeah, for sure. And uh, I, I really like your approach there of this assessment focus and the skill focus Um, sometimes I find with like these one-on-one times, there's just this idea that like, oh, I have a program and I run the kids through the program and that the program doesn't change based off the the child or, um, we're just going to read and we'll, that'll, that'll solve all the problems. Um, I think, you know, finding the student specific needs is so crucial when you're working with a student who's fallen behind for some reason or another
1: yes absolutely and i also need to say that while this is the current practice it wasn't always the practice so i've been working um in primary schools for just over 5 years and pre covid i felt like a duck um just waddling in water because i was working on oral language skills so we were doing the speech and language Side of things and speech uh speech sounds sure you, we i was seeing some progress in terms of clarity and how they put it um the sounds that the students were not able to say with practice with therapy you could see that obvious uh progress uh when it came to you know, assess, uh, reevaluating their the uh, treatment plan and then um, listening to them talk, all of that was okay. But there are connections to literacy within that sort of speech sound, connections to language and literacy both. But what I found was when I was working on language, and I mentioned before, it was the receptive and expressive language. Language is an un, um, unconstrained skill, which basically means that it grows and expands throughout the lifespan. So I wasn't able to, I just wasn't seeing the progress um, that I wanted to see. And I wasn't sure why that was or what was happening. And finally, when it came down to the crux of it in I was going through a few of my documents and one of them in 2017, I asked the question, we keep talking about language and we keep talking about that sort of background knowledge and vocabulary at a text level, but our kids aren't able to decode that text. What is happening there? Why, why are we not talking about the decoding part of literacy. Um, where And so then that was the question then and um, sort of started researching more into it. So then it became more than language and more than what we're doing in terms of oral language, but going, right, their function is literacy, they're having to read t- um, material and write uh, information. What are we doing in that domain? And that's, I suppose, where the journey began.
0: You know what? Every, every language teacher is evidence-based right now. Is Who's listening is screaming, yes! Because um, I think we've all had that moment. I know as I was an English teacher for a period of time, I'm not right now, I'm a grade A teacher right now, but I was an English teacher for a period of time. I started doing data collection to see if my students were learning and they weren't. And uh, I had to sort of rethink everything I was doing and everything I thought because, while well, either the students weren't capable of learning or I was doing a bad job teaching. And uh, I chose to believe the second and change my practices and really have a deep dive on what I could do better. Um, but, you know, you have to, I think, be accountable to yourself and your students before you can make those kind of changes. So uh, you're clearly talking about this moment of where you you had this um, philosophical shift in your thinking about instruction and uh, probably, I'm guessing, going more towards an evidence-based approach. Um, um, what made you want to do this?
1: So, as I said, I just, I wasn't happy with the progress. And um, I needed to be honest with myself about it, but also then start to talk to the schools and actually ask them are you seeing a pro? Are you seeing any progress? Like there might be some, and there might be some in terms of yes, they're sounding clear. That's all okay. They might be building vocabulary. That's fine. But are you happy within the literacy um, component? And that's where that sort of shared discussion I think was really useful because I was able to go um, sort of I was able to go as a professional knowing or. Oh, supposedly having to know a whole bunch of stuff going actually guys no I'm not happy and I don't know why this is happening so sort of having that vulnerability as well but being honest about it because I found I find that you know being in a school people don't want to hurt your feelings or they don't want to be able to say no auntie what you're doing isn't really effective like no one's going to come up and say that straight to my face but if I'm able to be honest and go no I don't know what's um clearly what I'm doing isn't working very well but I need to learn more about a few other things and that's where the shift happened was it felt really terrible sort of being in that space knowing that the children are not making progress but then also at the same time listening to um you know, the the school to prison pipeline concept and listening to people's experiences about it and going, we have to do, like there is a responsibility um, placed upon us at this point and we just need to do better. So that's where, despite how crap I felt um, at that point, going, no, we need to work past this and see what else um, I
0: identify with that so hard (laughs) yeah um so I'm curious what with your your research and your your change in strategies what did you start to recommend to teachers what did you start to implement yourself
1: so the first thing that made sense to me or what I stumbled upon was the simple view of reading and that multiplication is what made sense to me and what resonated so deeply going. It's not an addition. It's not any other mathematical equation, but it's the strongest one. And that's the multiplication. And we need everything within both components to be able to be a proficient reader and a competent reader. So that was one part of it. And at at the university I went to, we had learned about the Scarborough's um, reading rope. However, for whatever reason, I hadn't fully connected it to the work I was doing. So when I started reading more about and listening to more about the simple view of reading and then um, aligning it with Scarborough's reading rope, I started looking at my students and going, okay, fine. I'm working on language, sure, but what exactly am I wanting to look at? So I changed, it had to be my own change first and seeing what was working for these students, what wasn't working for these students before I started recommending um, anything to the teachers. And what I found worked really well was again, working on those unconstrained, oh, sorry, working on the constraint skills. So the word recognition skills, begin with and so we did the blending and segmenting and um sort of demonstrated had live demonstrations um recorded sessions all of that so that they were able to access that material and see how it impacted their reading and writing um and that's where with anything again it would be what skill does the child need to learn how does the brain learn so are we is the instruction clear are we reviewing what we are teaching are we asking the child to explain it to us because that's where the deep learning occurs. for any human if you're able to explain what you've learned then it's embedded into the long term and then how are we progressing so then this once it was recommended in small chunks again I'm putting it neatly, it wasn't, it was very messy. Um, but through trial and error, it started, constrained skills worked really well and trying to go step by step within that, try out a few things, experiment. If it doesn't work, then come to me. But it has to, yeah. I was like, at least let's give ourselves a fair go and um, try it for a few less, a few sessions rather than going. We've just we've tried it once, twice, or three times, and it hasn't worked. Let's jump on to something new. That's not how the brain works. So yeah, that's where it was. What is the skill? Um, what? How does the brain learn? And um, what strategies are we using to support this child? In either it's a one-on-one situation, a small group, or sort of that tiered approach, and in the classroom.
0: Yeah, no, I, th- I think that makes perfect sense. Uh, I've had a lot of really um, highly qualified professors and researchers on this podcast. And to be honest, I don't think you're saying anything different than what from what they're saying. But I, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, I think that's a good thing that, you know, I have so many intelligent people on this podcast all saying the same thing. I think that makes sense. So there's, the, there's logic in the commonality of it, right?
1: Yes, but. absolutely. And I wanted to add, one uh, thing as a speech and language pathologist, I might think something makes sense until I ask the adult to explain it so I I do tell them that I will ask them to explain it just because I want to know if it's made true sense to them or or they're afraid to or that it hasn't it hasn't made sense and they don't realize it hasn't made sense to them because if they're able to explain it with the true, like what I was trying to get across then I know that things will be followed up with and it will be easier for them however if parts of if parts are missing then I know those parts are going to be missing in the follow-through activities so we've sort of had the trust has been built the rapport has been built to a point where just tell me what's not working and I won't take it personally, but I will. At least, it will give me more of an opportunity to make things clearer, and and that to me is really beneficial because I'm having to learn a bit more, and I'm having to learn to deliver that message clearly, and sort of that sub. um, It's bringing to my consciousness as to when I'm not clear and when I am clear, and that has been probably the muddy part of it, but such a beneficial. Um, component in the piece
0: I mean realistically here I think you're you're in a leadership role right um, and maybe not in a formal leadership role but your job is to help other teachers in part do the best instruction they can and it's that's always a challenging piece it's always challenging to try and get other people on board with um, new instructional strategies or changing how they teach nobody will no teacher wants to change how they teach every teacher's defensive of their own pedagogical practices and I mean we're, that's just because every human being is um uh and defensive by their nature.
1: Ex- exactly, and and totally justified. Um, you know, someone coming in to tell me to change my practice and just saying you need to change it without actually really unpacking it and really going, oh, okay, what are you what are you doing? And then what can we either alter it in some way? I adding a little bit to it or deleting a bit to it and why are we doing it so that's where I think a speech and language pathologist role is so vital where I'm able to go into a classroom and say Johnny here has real difficulties understanding particular types of sentences now I'll tell you why that is um, and again it's so powerful to be able to go see this text they're reading it says um, it had it, it might contain embedded clauses or it might be a passive sentence. and for a child with language difficulties, they find that quite difficult to understand, remember, make sense of. But then at the same um, at the same time, the teacher is providing instructions which are really in long sentences, have embedded clauses in them and and they don't like we don't realize it. If you're not a speech and language pathologist that's constantly in tune and reflecting on what you're saying, you don't realize this is the complex instruction you've given. And you might have said, before before you line up, go and um, get the pencil, go and put your stuff away. And that's a routine instruction. But the time, the order has changed. They've heard line up, the verb, they've heard the rest of it didn't make sense because they didn't connect that it was the before part of it so it's so it's interesting to be able to go and say at this this is what's happening this is why it's happening and this is how we can um implement a few things in order to help the child succeed
0: that makes that makes complete sense i I also identify with that part about the, the sentence clauses because i know i'm studying french on the side right now and uh when, a, uh, when I have a single clause in French, it, it's fine for me. I, it's, it's fairly <laughs> easy. But as soon as we start adding multiple dependent clauses, I, even looking at it, I'm like, oh, I have to read yeah. this sentence. The sentence is awful. Um, so what's, what sources do you, uh, did you start using and where do you go to find your information to, to help you inform your practice?
1: Yeah, that, that's a loaded question because <laughs> there are, since COVID has happened, um, the amount of good quality information um there is out there uh, readily to be accessed. So I use a your a lot of the YouTube channels. Um I use social media uh I pick which uh, groups I'm a part of and who I'm following, um, just with the whole science of learning. But some of the Australian ones are there is a Facebook group called Reading Science in Schools. Now I'm not I'm not sure if it's just for Australia and New Zealand or there are other internationals um, within that group. But that's a wonderful group by. Um, yeah speech pathologists and teachers together and there is another one that's uh thinking forward educators and it's an organization um a wonderful uh, uh, speech pathologist a uh, stroke teacher that has founded it so they host a whole lot of webinars and wonderful um like a multidisciplinary uh kind of platform so there is Reading Science in Schools, Thinking Forward, Educators. I listen to quite a lot of the podcasts um, as well, just on pedagogy non grata being one of them. Um, There is Amplify, there is uh, Melissa and Laurie Love Literacy. So just where there is the science of reading, science of learning. um, Yeah, and again, I am very aware that these terms are now being have the tendency to be overused and we really need to pick and choose uh, so they are more my listening sort of information consumption and in terms of articles um, the reading league is awesome phenomenal they, yes and um so learning difficulties australia so a lot of those yeah and i see who they're following and sort of tend to yeah yeah there's
0: um, this I feel like there's this revolution going on right now in language instruction. And I feel like it's being fueled by um, dyslexia advocates, to be honest. Uh, I actually feel like it's more being fueled by parents of dyslexic students than it's by teachers. And uh, I I actually think the education community is going to be a little caught off guard and surprised. I think we'll see legislative changes happening and coming through before there are cultural changes. And I I don't know if uh, the education community will be... um, aware that this change is happening until it's it's right on their doorsteps um because yeah. i don't know when i when i look at, to, i belong to facebook groups for both teachers and for evidence-based instruction and i i don't see the same conversations happening in both groups um whereas in the the, the, the dyslexia or the evidence-based instruction groups it's almost all the dis- parents of dyslexic students and the the quality of the conversations are so high um, mm-hmm. shocking
1: yeah, and it's, and it's really interesting you bring that up. So part of my learning has also been through human chapters, actually talking with um, listening to people that have had firsthand experience. So with dyslexia, there's one uh, particular conversation with uh, Stephen Yerat, who is an adult with dyslexia. has gone through remediation and is the host of a podcast called Empower Dyslexia. And that in itself has been such incredible learning to to listen to their experience and going, how many years of social, emotional, like, you know, we talk about trauma and we talk about um, sort of reading difficulties, uh, literacy difficulties related to mental health issues related to that school to prison pipeline. And from their perspective, what does it, what is it actually, and that has been a different type of learning, but that's been professional learning as well to try to go, that's at an adult level, what's happening when the person is a child, and how does that relate to my own caseload and my schools, and what's happening at that, um, in that space, and yeah, just a, I suppose, a different way of anecdotal research or yeah not a randomized control trial but that in itself has um changed a lot of what I do
0: wow that's really interesting um sort of starting to think about how to wrap up this episode I got two final questions for you um and the first one is if you could give a teacher one piece of information or advice Mm -hmm. uh, as a practitioner what would it be
1: um (laughs) be open to mistakes and collaborate because i think we are humans we make mistakes but we can learn from them and it's okay like yeah we do yeah i think
0: I, that's, that's great important. i i something i'm trying to work on as a human being as an individual is being um more willing to admit when i'm wrong and own when i'm wrong because you know what I don't know if you can, anything can make you look more foolish than not admitting when you're wrong about something. So, but nobody wants to admit it. So I'm trying to just on myself, try to get better about admitting, Oh yeah, that was yeah. wrong. Yeah. Um, uh. So where can our, well, let's, let's hear a little bit about your podcast. So you have a really interesting format. Can you tell our audience about it?
1: Yeah. So human chapters, um, is a COVID project, um, I was born from, yeah, and it's basically talking, oh, sorry, the premise is humans are books. This is an international concept. We're all a living narrative. Um, and with human chapters, I love to talk to different people, um, any, yeah, from all over the world about one chapter of their life, um, whatever that chapter might be, and, it's connections to the past and possible connections to the future and it's so interesting having these conversations because they're usually really deep but it's it's a way of getting to know the human for their experiences and every human's experiences are different no matter um, whether they think their story is boring or not it's yeah it's just a good way I think to connect with people and really get to know them um and that's yeah human chapters
0: you know I been on your podcast I am just gonna throw this out there I think you're a really good interviewer in fact I was a little nervous about this episode because I know you're a podcast host too and uh an interviewer and like a really good interviewer and I was like you know what I'm not as good at interviewing people as Artie is so she's gonna be sitting there the whole time judging me in her head and be like oh
1: it's no. terrible at this. oh my um. god no ways um i think we, we're all curious and it's good to be able to ask questions and look someone will tell you someone won't want to answer that question and it's totally fine like at least the questions asked mm. yeah well
0: where where can people find your podcast
1: So it's on different, um, any podcast platform, I suppose, Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify. uh, And I have a Facebook page where I upload the videos um, that we record for the conversations. And it's called Human Chapters. Yeah. Just got a hand drawing (laughs) for the logo. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I really enjoyed the interview. Uh, And until next time to our listeners. I hope you check out Artie's podcast. Bye for now.